This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The San Francisco Zen Center's founder, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, together with his sole Dharma heir, Richard Baker Roshi, and his many other senior students, opened up the Japanese Soto Zen practice to the West. They built an empire of Zen in Northern California that continues to thrive for Zen practitioners and curious people to this day. If you've ever been to San Francisco, you've probably traveled by the city center location at Page and Laguna in Lower Haight, only blocks from Golden Gate Park. You may have eaten at Green's Restaurant, founded as a work practice location for Zen Center, and is a Michelin Guide recommendation. Maybe you've heard of Tassahara, the first Zen monastery founded outside Japan. Perhaps you heard my conversations with Anne and Joan Watts and heard us talk about how Alan Watts's funeral was at Green Gulch Farm, another Zen Center location in Marin County. San Francisco Zen Center has done a lot, but not all of it is sunshine and zazen. The place has a complicated history, and my guest today is going to talk about that. Today's guest is Michael Downing, author of the book Shoes Outside the Door. Desire, Devotion, and Excess at San Francisco Zen Center. This book is incredible as a work of history. I first heard about it from Brad Warner's book, Sex, Sin, and Zen, and it does not disappoint. It tells the entire history of Zen Center, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Michael Downing is the author of many books. He teaches creative writing at Tufts University, and I'm pleased to welcome him on Classical Ideas to discuss the research and writing of Shoes Outside the Door. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Michael Downing. Michael, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Oh, it's really my pleasure to join you, Greg. Excellent. So I'm curious if you can just start off by introducing a little bit about who you are in the world, what you do, and what you focus on in your work. Well, I'm a writer and a teacher both, and I've published nine books, um, the majority of them fiction, though I think most of my fiction, <laughs> as is true for so many novelists, teases the border of, of nonfiction. And, you know, one of my principal interests has always been in chosen communities, um, families that we don't inherit but seek out. And also what I like to think of as kind of illegitimate histories, that is, American stories that have um, deeply influenced the culture but have not made it onto the record yet, and um, trying to find a way to put those stories onto the record. Excellent. And your book that I want to talk to you about today, specifically Shoes Outside the Door, which is a biography of the San Francisco Zen Center, does exactly that. And I found this book mentioned in one of Brad Warner's books, and I've read this book twice since October, and it's been an amazingly descriptive resource for me about Zen and Zen's development in the West, and I have a really deep interest in Zen practice. Um, so thank you so much for the resource that you've created here. 
in the book, you had to learn a lot of specialized information to write this book, it seems. It seems like Zen must have genuinely touched your life in some way. So how did you get interested in, in Buddhism? Well, I got interested in the San Francisco Zen Center before I got interested in Zen or Buddhism, frankly. Um, yeah, I, my editor has for 20 years been Jack Shoemaker, who was the founder of North Point Press and now Counterpoint, a longtime publisher of a number of um, people who have both translated the sutras and have been interested in Zen Buddhism, but also Gary Snyder and other poets who fit into this lineage of people who have thought about the East deeply and worried about how it fits into the Western culture. And this really began because Jack Shoemaker is also the editor of Wendell Berry, I should say the great Wendell Berry. And um, I was on the West Coast, where my editor Jack lives, and so was Wendell Berry, and we were promoting um, books of our own that Jack had published. And Wendell said he was going up to Green Gulch Farm, and did I want to go with him? And this is how ignorant I was at the time about the entire project, I had never heard of Green Gulch Farm. I had no idea where it was. We were in San Francisco. I didn't know if we were actually going essentially to Manitoba or hmm. Baja, California. <laughs> um, but it was Wendell Berry, and I would follow him anywhere. And that's really how I got introduced to the fact of Zen Center. And later, after spending the day at Green Gulch, Jack and I and Wendell and a few other writers went to dinner and they began to, I began to ask questions about this place I'd never heard of. And after about a half an hour, I, I said, how can it be that I've, I'm, I read a lot. I care about the culture I live in. How can I not know any of this? And, you know, what should I read? What's the book about this place? And my editor, Jack, just looked at me and said, it's yours to write. You should write it. And that's how it began. Fantastic. Well, I love that you have a single question that you start off with all of the interviews in the book. So you write in the book, a lot of discontent, depression, sickness, bad luck, and loneliness paved the way for Zen Center students, which I identify with because when I'm feeling low, I tend to turn to Zazen practice a little more than when I feel really great. So you kind of like wrapped in my question here. So what led you to Zen Center? But what was your, uh, whenever, that first day when you arrived at Green Gulch, did you go that day to Green Gulch? I did. And what was your first impression of the place whenever you came in? You know, two things. Um, one is the incredible beauty of the land. Northern California itself um, is just sculpted out of the planet in such a dramatic way that it's hard not to be wowed by the formation itself. And it's 150 green acres slung over the Pacific. So for um, someone who has spent his time on the East Coast with less dramatic land forms, that was my first impression. And then as I entered the farm and the beautiful buildings, um, some of them in pristine shape and some of them sagging with the weight of time, it felt um, like a dream of a place in the sense that it tallied with one's most romantic sense of um, an agricultural life that you think is lost, but is only lost because you don't practice it. And so the 
the peacefulness of the place, the ease of, with which people move through the land and into the buildings, um, got under my skin. I thought this is a remarkable place, and it felt, um, you know, it had that duality of feeling both original and familiar, and that's always um, an attractive, you know, twosome in, in anything or anyone. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced as far as, like, uh, concepts within Zen. Like you had to learn so much specialized information throughout the course of this book, and you were probably starting from like point zero, right? I was starting from minus something. Okay. <laughs> to be completely honest, I knew nothing. Okay. Um, and it really, I knew so little that it took me three or four months to catch on to how little I understood and how much work I had to do just to understand. You know, in some cases, the simplest of conversations, in part because, of course, there's um, a 5,000-year history of Buddhism that I had to catch up with. Yeah. So that was a little daunting. And uh, layered onto that was the Japanese quality of the imported Zen, both the practice language and the ritual language, and in some cases, simply the names of priests. I mean, for the first few months that I was talking to people even when I was recording them or even before I was recording them and I was taking notes, I, I was using phonetic spelling so that I would remember how to pronounce a name that I could then ask what the name might mean because I was, I was that ignorant. So I just began first to ask everyone you know, I knew in starting with my editor, what should I read for foundation texts? And then I also began to really ask everyone who I spoke with who was kind enough early on, and there were a few people who were really kind enough early on to grant me interviews. Um, I began to ask them as well what they would recommend that I read and who should I be reading so that I could begin to understand the spirit of the project. So since you started from minus and you knew nothing and it was an incredibly daunting task to get up to speed on all these concepts of the 5,000-year history of Buddhism, why didn't you give up? Who do you credit with pushing you through whenever it may have seemed impossible? That's a great question. Um, you know, the dauntingness or the vastness of the topic was not um, discouraging. Um, I love research. I spend a lot of time, I've devoted a lot of my life, um, usefully or not, to reading and reflecting on what I'm reading, and my life has afforded me a lot of time for that. So that part was actually rewarding. Um, I did find the early, by the time I began to try to piece together both the story of Buddhism and how it got to the West through Zen Center, and with the stories of some of the early practitioners, the sadness of the story started to leak through, and that I did find discouraging. And frankly, um, my editor was always a huge help, as were the people in my, you know, my life um, who have long supported my writing and been champions of my work. But I'll tell you, I did something really peculiar. I got so unnerved and disheartened by what became the apparent topic of the book I was writing, which was, of course, more about people's lives and their struggles and their sadnesses than I had anticipated that um, about uh, nine months into the project, I um, started to write a novel, 
a little comic novel to make myself feel better. Yeah. And this is really true. I went to my editor who had by then commissioned and written the check for me to write shoes outside the door. And I said, I've done something a little odd. I started a novel and I sent him the pages and he said, how quickly can you finish it? And I said, I think in about six months. <laughs> and he said, do that and then come back. And I did. And I wrote and published another novel and then went back to shoes outside the door. It's it's a heavy read. Um, I was reading some of the stuff with uh, a character named Lucy last night, and it was uh, it's it's heavy. I mean, the material in the book is overwhelming. Whenever it comes to the topics of, um, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace, which we deal with a lot today, so it's a really heavy read. So I can completely understand why you did that. I I never would have made it. Well, you know, I wouldn't have either. And, you know, Lucy is such a, a pivotal figure for me in the writing of the book and also thinking about how to write the book and what was what was a book worth writing um, at this point in history. And she was one of a couple of women who had been really harmed um, by their relationships with Richard Baker. And she initially agreed to speak to me only on the condition of an anonymity, which I was happy to accord her because I knew she had suffered a lot already, and she had a new life, and she did not want her harm to be so central to her new life. That's how she understood it at first, and we spoke several times, and about, oh, I think maybe eight months after our second or third conversation, um, which she knew I was recording and she had agreed to, she... uh, called me rather out of the blue, and she said, I've changed my mind, and I thought she was going to withdraw her comments from the book, which, of course, I would have done. And she said, I want to use my name. It was me, I am I, and I I want this story to be on the record. And it was a decision like that, her, um, her sense of valor, I guess, and also her sense of wholeness of her life. It was really, truly inspiring. In the best sense, I mean sort of filling me with something that was not me, that was someone else's um, goodness. And I thought, okay, I see that the the book is meant to be the voices of other people. It's not my story. It's only my story insofar as I intersect with their stories. And that's really what made the project start to feel really heartening, was the chance to put on the record voices that really matter in the history of this country, in the history of American Zen, and in the history of Buddhism, that would otherwise never be accorded the dignity of first-person delivery. It And those scenes, I mean, they're so powerful. And the book, to me, really jumps out in those moments. And I am, I, I mean, obviously, I didn't know that backstory behind it. So that makes it even more powerful to me that that was a decision that she was uncertain about, and then she said, "No, this is me." So I like my my hats off um, to those decisions. Can we draw back for a second and talk a little bit about the big picture of the place? Sure. Okay. So um, it's a big picture. <laughs> it's a it's a huge picture, and there's a few central characters that we really have to talk about. So, uh, what should Westerners know about Shunryu Suzuki and his role in American spirituality? Well, I like to think that, first of all, it's a bit of an accidental role, um, which seems fitting for him as far as I understand through his many students and admirers. It's hilarious. 
right? I mean, he really comes over to be a very traditional priest, you would call him in this country, um, from Japan, um, to a little congregation of Japanese Buddhists in San Francisco who have a traditional temple, which is to say he performs marriages and funerals, and he is a member of the community with a defined role. But the, the idea of zazen or sitting in meditation for people, you know, regular lay people, is just, it doesn't exist. And he's here in a very traditional Japanese role, serving a Japanese population. And word of his arrival catches on with a few people in, you know, you would call them seekers in San Francisco in the Bay Area, who begin to gravitate toward this little temple on Bush Street and ask him about Zen. And then he agrees to show them Zazen and they begin, unlike the Japanese parishioners, to sit with, with Suzuki Roshi, whom they begin to call Roshi, a title that he tried to avoid for many years until Alan Watts convinced the members of his little community that that's probably the more appropriate title for him. <laughs> and so he, he gradually develops a reputation far beyond anything he was seeking or anything that I think anyone in Japan ever thought would be accorded to him. He was not a particularly distinguished luminary, he, quite the opposite. He was, you know, comparable to, in our culture, to a little parish priest who got himself transferred to America and um, started to talk to people and to treat them in a way, you know, use language that they had not heard before and yet was familiar to them and to treat them in a way which to them felt both new and essential. And, you know, that's really where the Suzuki story begins. And, you know, if the certain group of people in the 60s in California had not found him, it's it's likely that he would have just gone on to perform those marriages and funerals for the rest of his life. I think that's absolutely right. I think and that that's the sense in which it feels, you know, maybe there are no accidents, but in the simplest terms, it feels accidental. It feels... Um, it feels almost comical that yeah. he becomes the, the vehicle for this incredibly transformative experience that's about to take place. And what's so funny about Alan Watts is he keeps coming up for me. Um, I interviewed both of his, his eldest daughters, Joan and Anne, so they were on this show. Yeah, and then I interviewed a woman named Janica Anderson who wrote a book about um, Ruth Sasaki, who is Alan Watts's first mother-in-law. And he keeps popping up, and it's in such a funny way. I love it. I love the Alan Watts thread running <laughs> through the show. It kind of gives me a plot line. Um, <laughs> right. So, and what's really funny to me about Suzuki Roshi is that he wrote this legendary, he has this legendary book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Bind. And in the book, you have a fantastic quote, is that it's a book rife with things he hadn't exactly said which are able to be quoted out of context. So this accidental man who becomes like the most famous Zen master in American history, um, which, I mean, it's not a very long history at this point, but it was totally accidental. And the book is used often, and it's out of context with things that he hadn't exactly said. How is that book important today? Well, I think in a number of ways. You know, I think um, most scripture is has a similar history. 
which is to say that it's not typically typical that the great teachings we inherit were given to be written down or were written down by their by the teachers and uh, you know so in that sense suzuki roshi falls into the lineage of many other spiritual teachers through the ages who gave lectures or talks or just spoke to people and he explicitly um, asked that no one record him or take notes during his lectures um, that I think he understood that he was speaking in a moment to particular people for a particular reason and I think he understood in that sense the limits of language um, I don't think most Americans had as sophisticated an idea of the limits of language as did he and because there were people who were practicing in Los Angeles who couldn't come to his lectures he was finally cajoled into having them recorded and um, so his ideas about then his ideas about what people might you know questions people ask spontaneously in particular settings got written down and codified and so the book is does carry a decidedly original sense and a charming sense I should add that you attribute to the man because you're reading a book that allegedly was written by him though it was wildly edited and also condensed and I think two things I think um, the spirit of the book has inspired a lot of people and you have to think there's something that is therefore being transmitted that seems genuine and I think on the other hand written down and codified um, we lose the contextual moment the lived moment and possibly at least should question what the spirit of those particular comments were I mean I think one of the real risks certainly you know this very well better than I as a someone with a practice it's very easy to get charmed by the ironies or apparent contradictions that inheres in the language of Zen and to have the um, delight of the minds turning those contradictions over become a substitute for let's say thinking clearly or acting properly <laughs> um, it becomes an occupation of its own and I think that's one of the risks that inheres in that book when you went to Zen Center as a total novice, did you get involved in any practice over your during your involvement with the center? Yeah, to my utter surprise, I sat the monastic practice from the beginning each time I was at any of the centers. So I often sat the monastic practice. Oh wow! What did you struggle with the most? <laughs> That's a, it's a lovely question. It's, what I struggled with the most might be the fact that it wasn't much of a struggle for me. Hmm. Um, and I don't mean that as a sort of boast of any kind. It felt very normal to me and natural in some ways. You know, I I don't know you could try to assemble biographical elements that make that so or made that so. Um, one is I grew up in a very large family. I'm the youngest of nine children. So groups didn't intimidate me. And group behavior and falling into line and figuring out how to get things done for a lot of people, that was very familiar territory to me. Um, so it might be that that helped the sitting itself and the the quality of silence uh the quality of not marking time those really resonated with a, a lot of my lived life as an adult you know as a writer i spend a lot of time in solitude 
Um, I spend a lot of time that I would call writing in which I am doing absolutely nothing and thinking absolutely nothing mm-hmm. and just sort of moving through the planet. <laughs> um, and so the setting did not seem either foreign or odd or especially rigorous. Um, I also didn't have a sense of how I was doing. You know, I'm not a person... I. I don't, I'm not very competitive by nature, so um, I didn't have a sense of a standard that I was trying to live up to. I, you know, people were very kind to me and said, you know, you'll find it easier if you do this and cross your leg this way, and if you'll also find it easier if you um, really straighten your back up, your breathing will come more naturally. And the advice always seemed to me pretty much spot on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my body was pretty compliant. I was young. I didn't have any particular physical challenges, that's really, you know, that was incredibly lucky. Um, so in those senses, uh, it, it just felt interesting to me. It felt, you know, um, if I have had any built-in resistance or reluctance, um, that was because I have a built-in resistance and reluctance about religion and um, the communities or many people in the communities, I should say, reluctance to label what they were doing as religious practice for me was, uh, really intriguing to say the least. And, um, one of the avenues that really opened up the story for me because I was so taken by how resistant they were to call what they were doing religion. So do you disagree with their take? Do you think it, do you, would you classify it as religious practice? I think that's what it is. I think it, it's where it begins. It's what, you know, and because they were the first Americans, you know, lots of Americans have engaged with the idea of Buddhism as a philosophy or a psychology or a number of other ologies. But these were the first pre- people to really rigorously adopt the practice. And it seems to me that that is the fundamental, one of the fundamental elements of what we mean by the word religion, which is that the practice which supports the lineage of teaching and belief. And, but it's the practice which is the religion, that's the right. And so for me, it, 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 there was no question. And, you know, I didn't mean this authoritatively, that felt instinctive. And it was really Gary Snyder, um, who when I asked him directly about this, I was very confused about people's um, eagerness not to have it called a religion. And he said, you know, it's just, it's a false note. It's, it's, if you can't call it a religion, you, you can't talk about it. That's mm-hmm. where the talking about it begins. It may be many other things, but it's certainly a religion. Interesting. So Gar- would Gary say it's a religion? Oh, yeah. He said, it's just, it's, he, he, he actually said something so beautiful about it. He said, Trying to say Zen Buddhism is not religion is trying to clean up your dreams. Oh, wow. And I thought, you know, that's why you want to know Gary Snyder. (laughs) Yeah, well, and what's interesting about Gary Snyder is I know that he studied a lot in Japan with Ruth Sasaki, who was Alan Watts' mother-in-law. And Mm -hmm. one of the books that she wrote, which was published by the first Zen Institute, is called Zen, A Religion. And so Ruth was the first Westerner ever ordained in a Japanese monastery, and her first book is, I don't know if actually if it's her first book, but it's one of her books, 
um, is called Zen a religion. So that's interesting that her and Gary Snyder knew each other, and they both would classify it as a religion. Well, you say these words, ordained, yeah. right? You just go through the language of it, and you think, what's the coherent language with this? It's the language of religion. Right. Okay, so in 2001, you wrote that you you were emphatic that you were the wrong person to tell the story of Zen Center. So thinking back on this book over the last 15, 16 years, do you still agree that you're the wrong person to tell the story? Oh, absolutely. I think I couldn't have been the wronger, more wrong than I was, and I still believe that. And I think in some ways, um, and I don't just mean that ironically or uh, as a, a comical inversion or a, a kind of zenish thing to say. Um, I think I was the wrong person in the sense that I did not have a book to write about Zen Center. I did not have an axe to grind against anyone in it. I did not have a personal experience that informed or illuminated uh, the history from my point of view. Um, and as a result, and really believing that, the biggest struggle for me was the structure of the book itself, how to write an authentic book as the person who ought not be writing this book. And my first instinct was to keep myself entirely out of the story, not to enter as the first person ever. And it was really... Um, Dan Welch, who figures very prominently in my understanding of Zen Center and also figures really deeply in my heart because I think he's an unusual and um, amazingly compassionate man. Um, he, Dan, um, who often said surprising and alarming things to me and was not always a calming presence in my life, I should add, but on um, our second meeting, we were driving up from Santa Fe up through the mountains into Colorado, and he put his hand on my sweater and plucked off something. Um, and he said, you know, he, he talked to me about the problem of the speck of dust, that if you start to do anything as small as pick up a speck of dust, you know, you, you start to raise all the troubles of the world. And he turned to me and said, you know, you're in the story now. And I thought, you know, I have to hear that I'm not central to this story. It's not my story, but I am in it. And that's when I decided that I would introduce myself, introduce how inappropriate a person I was to be in the book, and then turn 90% of the, of the book over to the voices of other people. And it gave me both an entrance, but it also, with each person, gave me a clear exit. I was never confused, but that this was not my story. Mm -hmm. I love that you left yourself in it, though. Yeah, it was hard to do, right? You want, I mean, my instinct was to get the heck out of there. Right, right. <laughs> and not appear. But, you know, that gives a false sense of objectivity and authority to me. Yeah. And if I let myself enter the book, I just became one more idiot who was trying to make some sense of this experience. Yeah. So you interviewed around 80 people for the book. Do you have like a massive filing cabinet full of material all these years later? Like, how, what do you have still? Oh, I, I do. I have uh, an overwhelming amount of material. <laughs> I have all the original tape recordings. I, in each case, everyone I spoke to, I recorded, whether or not they were ending up determined to have be on the record. So um, that was always the choice I offered people. They could either be on the record or not if they agreed to interview me, uh, be interviewed by me. So I have all the audio tapes, and then. 
when I got to the point where I had 60 or 70 of them on the record, and some of them are, the interviews are longer than 15 and 20 hours that I interviewed people over and over. Um, because I was so uncertain about what form the book needed to be or what was the organic shape of the story, I then, um, it's a little hard for me to believe this, and it's true, over the course of several months, I sat and did nothing but transcribe every interview by myself. Mm -hmm. And then I read all of the transcripts through. So I have my type transcripts of, I have the tape recordings, I have the type transcripts, and then I have another set of paper, which is the extract I'm using from those transcripts. So all of that exists. And because of the generosity of Zen Center itself as an institution, but particularly Michael Wenger, who was then head of the archives at Zen Center, I was given an absolute total access to the historical record that they had assembled, such as it was in paper. And so I also have a tremendous number of notes and copies and versions of that material. I got interested in everything from, you know, early things written down both about the, you know, Suzuki Roshi or about early practitioners, but I was I wanted to know what every, you know, loaf of bread cost when they sold it at the bakery or what um how much people were paid year by year to work at Green's restaurant. So that level of detail also exists in paper in my life. So I'm a, a little bit of a I'm in danger of becoming a hoarder, I suppose. <laughs> all right, so the the people in the book who you spent all these times with, like you must have really liked a lot of these people. You know, I I I hope this doesn't sound like a false note because it's true. I love them all. Yeah. I love them for talking to me. I love them for doing something that really inspired me and made me think again. And um, I keep going back to the word. Um, they were originals, and there's nothing I admire more in the world than original action. Um, so, you know, and the other thing is, I, I was nobody from nowhere who turned up with a, a tape recorder, and they began to speak. You know, I... I it's worth noting, you know, when I talk about both the record that I have and also these interviews I did, I mean, I, what, my role, I sound like someone's psychotherapist. Here's what I mean by that. Here is what I say on the transcripts. Uh-huh. Hmm. Really? Mm hmm What year was that again? I, once people began to talk, their stories were coming out in these incredibly eloquent paragraphs as if these were, um, these were stories that they had been waiting to tell. And, you know, someone who's willing to tell you their story, I'm, you know, I'm already, my affection is, is off, you know, through the roof for them. So who are some of your favorite people in the book? Well, that's a, you know, that's a sort of complicated question. I mean, I loved spending time with lots of people. Dan Welch is the person, I think, who of who most got to me, most unsettled me in a great way. Because, um, you know, Karen Giording, who was a woman who ended up being sort of drafted in to become the manager of both the Alaya, the futon factory they were trying to launch, and then the bakery, the famous Tassahara Bread Bakery, and then Green's Restaurant. She 
completely I was nuts about because she was so incredibly straightforward and also um, kind of unfazed by her own role and by the role of everyone else in it. In other words, she, you know, um, she just felt like a person who was truly sort of present for the experience of it and willing to sort of believe everything that happened. Um, so I, I loved um, Karen. You know, there are a number of people, I, I would say probably no one was more central to my capacity to understand the whole story from both sides than Yvonne Rand. Oh my goodness, I um, know. her. Every time she pops up in the book, I just perk up a little bit. Right? Yeah, seriously. I mean, she has real authority. Mm-hmm. You know, and what she also has, Yvonne... I'm a big fan of Ovans, and she, um, you know, she also suffered a lot, and I think she also claimed her role as a person who occasioned a lot of harm that she didn't understand was harm at the time. So I thought her um, tough-mindedness about her own story was really instructive for me. And, you know, and it also goes to the quality of um, we can't, we, we don't get it right every time, but um, our a willingness at some point to reckon with our own records and to try to uh, amend them and correct them and make them better and to do better going forward, I just thought Yvonne was exemplary in that way. And she also stood for initially, um, for me and I think for a lot of women in the community, the peculiar role of women in American Zen um, and how targeted they were, um, even though it appeared that that wasn't the case, and um, her steadfastness um, in terms of how she really stood by women who got harmed and whose stories finally came out, um, that's important to me. That was really um, essential material to me as a human being and as a writer. Did you have any really, really fun experiences while you were researching? Like, Did you like laugh with somebody do you does something stand out as something where you were just like in hysterics with uh with comedy <laughs> yeah i think the, um, the answer to that is yes um every time i drove with anybody to tasahara it was a hilarious experience because you always feel like you're just driving off the end of the world and also the road itself occasions so much you know calamity that you think <laughs> are we still here or are we just, have, we, have we left the planet that you know i had really delightful times um i confess in the book um that i was at the time a, a regular smoker and the people who smoked at every single zen center were set apart for little bits of time after every meal in what I like to think of as the den of iniquity. <laughs> and <laughs> we would all come out and have a cigarette and someone would bring tea. And those were both hilarious moments of just reprieve and release and also um, a little bit of delight in being outlaws and being not quite quite good enough for the rest of the community. So there was a lot of fun involved. Um, yeah, so I, I, I did have fun. Um, so recently, you may have heard that Graham Petchy passed away, right? I did. So Graham is featured in the book quite a lot as well, and I want to talk about him for just a second because of his recent passing. But he was the first student of Suzuki Roshi who studied in a Japanese monastery. What are some of your favorite memories of being with Graham Petchy? 
Well, you know, what's interesting about Graham is that he's a public school boy from Britain originally and had had a sort of deep interest in organized religion of all kinds, almost or tried to become a monk at one point or join a religious order in England. He had a long, lifelong sort of interest in both community, but also particularly in spiritual communities. Um, Graham, uh, you know, these feel like... um, worn-out words, but Graham really brings them to life. He was a genuine gentleman, and I mean that in the capital B British sense, and so I think he would have been the first to say this was true, and it was clear on meeting him. He had inherited a kind of trust of manners, um, of good behavior, of quiet speech, of not saying too much about any particular topic until he was sure that you would understand the Um, spirit of what he was saying. And that trust of manners felt to me very coherent with the trust of manners that a lot of people had attempted to pick up via practice, that is the Japanese habits of being. And so um, on Graham, oddly, they made sense because he had lived his whole life with that trust of manners, and he um, wore it kind of impeccably. Um, And the other thing about Graham is that I think he never wanted to be have his life carried out entirely in community. That is, he always was lived apart and had a pursued an entrepreneurial life. And I think he was always a little alarmed or um, concerned about this drive toward everyone living together in order to form community versus, let's say, if I could use the word sangha, which could exist without the practical necessity of living together. And I think Graham probably was more alert to the possibility of the sangha, and that's part of what kept him apart from the story. So we have to talk a little bit about um, the former abbot, uh, Richard Baker Roshi, who is the, currently, he's still teaching and practicing at Crestone Mountain uh, Zen Center in Colorado. So there was a sex scandal that your book describes, but it seems to me, and I was talking about this with Brad Warner as well, the opulent spending of money may have been like a greater concern. Um, So he and I were chatting about that. So what do you see as the central problem facing the community as it grew into like this Zen empire in California? Well, I want to say two things about that. I, you know, I've thought about this a lot and I, it's, um, Obviously, it's not a singular problem that Zen Center had, but it was really a problem that Zen Center had. Um, I think it makes us feel unsophisticated or puritanical to say sex was the problem. And therefore, I think we like to say it wasn't sex. Mm -hmm. And I also think that reflects the ongoing truth that it is most often women who are harmed in these situations and that the language still reflects our willingness to accept and tolerate the harm of women as natural. Um, Here's what I think, Greg, and I I don't want to sound pious here, but I really have thought about this. Um, If a person cannot understand in the most intimate of situations that that situation is harmful and problematic and confusing, both for 
the other person involved in the physical intimacy, and for people who might become aware of or affected by that intimacy. If the body, the most precious of our currencies, doesn't register with an individual, I can't think of a more serious flaw in a human being than to repeatedly cause harm to other people's, the currency of the self, never claim it, in fact deny it, and repeatedly try to essentially um, vilify the person who was harmed for being harmed, as if that's a flaw in that person. That seems to me a much more dire failure and much more threatening to an institution of any kind than any other currency like money or power. And I think the failure of Richard Baker to, to be able to understand and to, or to claim or to make amends for the harm done to other people's sense of self was really the most potent and important part of the story. Yeah. I agree. I was reading it last night and I was making some notes to myself about exactly that. And I'm going to sort of let that comment just sit because I would love for people to read this book and understand uh, your analysis in the aftermath and what you just said. So, because when I think of spiritual practice, a lot of things come to mind. And it seems like spiritual teachers throughout history have like succumbed to power and wealth though these things seem like the antithesis of what spiritual practice should be about. So it seems like um, people in the book are confronting the use of wealth, um, but there's also a an inherent denial that they gathered in the moment that any wrong was being done. And there's the common theme uh, in, in Baker's quotes of, this I learned as if it's like he's completely oblivious throughout the entire book. And and now he's saying, oh, I never would have considered this, but this I learned. So he's like, you know, it, it, it's really bizarre. It's preposterous, of course, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and, and he's, and he's yeah. making himself to sound like he's like not intelligent. That's right. And it's also, you know, it's a, famous old trick, not just of spiritual teachers, but of people who are trying to escape their own sense of themselves, you know, that is trying to falsify their sense of self, to claim every revelation of or illumination of their behavior as a revelation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just that's, that, you know, that's, you can call it Nixonian, <laughs> you know, you can call it, you can just name it whatever you want. But it's behavior we've all seen many times. I think the the piece that I just don't want to lose, and we don't need to talk about it right now, but is that this idea of the blindness of the community, however, also plays into the story, right? Mm -hmm. And the sort of what they were seeing and how they could not report the truth of that to themselves and to each other is also important. And I think that was Yvonne's, one of Yvonne's greatest sources of pain. And obviously I don't know Yvonne and I can't speak for her, but that seems like the thing that really just stuck with her is that. I think that's right. I think, you know, in some ways I think she understood some of it as the way that people who are harmed tend to encapsulate the harm and then not let it leak into their sense of their larger sense of selves and therefore it doesn't read 
They don't read the story through that. I think that's one way to understand it. But another um, guy who went there as a young practitioner, um, who also was one of, you know, you asked my favorite person, and every time I think of one of the hundreds of people I met, that, that person's my new favorite as soon as I think of him or her. But Willem Malton, who was a young guy from Holland who went to Zen Center and ended up in Santa Fe running his own bakery and having a very original great life, he talked to me about the blindness of his own and his sense that the not the unwillingness to see because you understood enough of what was at risk if you let yourself see it, which is that the time, the amazing amount of time, the amazing hard work these people had done, the hours they had spent not just in Zazen, but washing floors and baking bread and serving people at restaurants and serving Richard Baker in his home, all of that was at risk, that it was for naught if you acknowledge that there was something wrong with the entire project at its center. And I think that kind of blindness reads familiar to all of us who have been adults and tried to protect the lives we've made. I would imagine that most of the people who are in the book probably got themselves to sit down and read it at some point. What was the response <laughs> of some of the subjects profiled in the book? It's, you know, it's always surprising with people's responses to the book. You know, some of the people who you think might be alarmed or annoyed by it were among the most complimentary. Um, and some people who you, uh, I would have thought I had done nothing but, but whose portrayal seemed to me incredibly um, complimentary and a sort of engaging and interesting had um, some objections to things that they felt were not um, representative of them at the time or maybe um, that they had said something and now wish they could sort of um, put it into a better context. So overall, the response was incredibly positive compared to what it might have been. There were a few people who were hopping mad about the book, um, not least of them Richard Baker and his associates, um, who were eager at one point to try to, thought they could stop the publication of the book. Um, I'm not making that up. Wow, scary. Uh, yeah, you know, launched a lawsuit, um, which is one of the, you know, again, one of the great, um, <laughs> it's like the last resort of scoundrels, I'll sue you, and you think for one, I mean, you, it's all, you said it all, you know, I just, yeah. it's not as if I had handcuffed him to the law and asked him questions, so, um, but, you know, I think what I, I suspect for many people, both people who were eager to participate and who were incredibly important in supporting the project and also getting me in contact with other people in the community, I think for everyone it's an ambivalent experience to read an account that by itself can never be complete and in which the self is not the central character, right? I mean, because we're all the central character of our own stories. And so I think there's always a sort of... Um, Sadness in what's not there or, um, or how it will be perceived for anyone reading it. Um, overall, people have been, the reaction has been good. And I've, I'm, it, I think it's gratifying for them, I hope, and I mean that in the sense of that um, this work, um, I mean the work they did to make Zen Center and to bring um, Buddhism, this strain of Buddhism through to the West 
um, got on the record and the book has had a life within Buddhist studies and cultural studies that makes their voices available to a really a lot of Americans who might not have heard their voices otherwise. Me included. That's great. Do you, um, you don't have to tell me exactly who if you don't want to, but do you still keep in touch with anyone from Zen Center in even like a casual sort of acquaintance way? I do. I have several people I keep in touch with. Um, I, uh, a number of them. I mean, Karen Gjording, who I mentioned earlier, whenever I'm in the Bay Area or she's on the East Coast, we see each other. Ed Brown, um, Mr. Bread, yes. <laughs> Mr. Fine Cook. Ed and I are good friends, and we. it sh- uh, turns out Ed and several other people, of course, um, you know, speaking uh, in I don't mean it um, sacrilegiously, but using something like long body, you know, Zen Center is embodies long body, and it has so a number of people I know or have since met or have come to know have a connection to Zen Center, especially through Tassajara, and so that has then put me back in touch with lots of people who I knew through the book. That makes me really happy, you know. I, that really yeah, it's lucky too, yeah, right? Yeah. Because um, yeah, it, it really could have gone, yeah, it really could have gone either way as far as like keeping long term friendships. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're a professor and you hold a position of authority. Um, so what sort of lessons did you learn about working with people in a position of authority that you would not have learned had you not immersed yourself in Zen Center? Well, that's. Um, let me say one thing by way of preface to this. Um, you know, the, the sacred space in my life is the classroom. That, that's the truth. Um, and that's my practice. And, um, when I close the door to the classroom, uh, we're, we are, those of us inside making a world that is, um, a world that we want to actually share that conforms to the principles that we all can endorse. And um, the experience of that has always informed my larger life and the possibilities of what it, what can happen with a community. And I, I always, I think one of the things teaching teaches one is that all community is both permanent and not. Um, all intimacies are enduring and not. And the passing of people through classrooms over time, and I include myself in that passage, um, this notion of how permanence is permanent and how impermanence is permanent, is, that's always, that, th- those are the lessons for me of the classroom. And um, what, thinking about the Zen Center story um, really has helped me remember, has helped me try to practice. I want to make it clear that these are all, you know, just falling down attempts on my part. I don't think I've got it right. I don't think I ever get it right. What I'm trying to do as a result of that experience at Zen Center in the classroom is to make sure that any sense of authority that I have is something that is immediately and truly and, um, explicitly transferred to the writer, to the individual in the classroom. That the authority has no merit in the classroom, no use in the classroom, if it's not possessed by the other. 
that any authority I have that I hold on to is sterile. It has absolutely no life. And given away, of course, it, it, it's aspirated. It takes form. It's given life. And it takes surprising form often when you give students authority. And they become, you know, I mean, there's a reason I, I teach creative writing, but the word author and authority are cognates. They're, right? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're claiming authority. And when they claim it, it removes it from me and it removes the burden from me of trying to figure out what to do with authority. And for me, the the delight of the classroom, I don't mean this again um, piously. I mean it as the real fun and joy of time in the classroom is to be present when people take their authority and begin to um, exercise authority. It's just thrilling. And the sadness for me that was pervasive at Zen Center in the 80s, but in some ways still haunts the place, is this confusion over the isolation of authority in individuals. And um, I think it's a problem with religion from the beginning, that there is an appointed authority who is meant to somehow keep and maintain and exercise authority. And it seems to me, if it's singular, if authority is singular, the joy goes right down the drain for me. Um, so that's, I think, where it applies to my teaching. Well, Michael Downing, that is a really fantastic place to leave the conversation. Um, where can people find more of your work if they want to know more? And also, feel free to uh, mention the titles of your other books as well, especially things that are like more current. Well, I, you know... Um... Some people may have heard of me because I have a very peculiar life twice a year as America's conscience about daylight saving time because I wrote a narrative history of that crazy practice called Spring Forward, and I spend a lot of time on the radio every year and on TV talking about our clocks. The book that really, I think, is most coherent with Shoes Outside the Door that I wrote is called um, Perfect Agreement, and it's a novel about a teacher and about the American Shakers, and it really is the book that got me alert to community life. And I've just finished a new novel, which will be out next year, which is called Still in Love, which is a follow-up to Perfect Agreement, another story about a teacher. And anything else about me you can find at my website, michaeldowningbooks.com. First of all, I love that you are uh, so involved in Daylight Savings. I didn't know how <laughs> ridiculous it was until I lived in Saskatchewan in Canada where they do not <laughs> practice it. So there you I, go. You were in one of the hot spots. Yeah, I appreciate your conscience and your voice on that issue because every year Daylight Savings ruins two of my days per year. <laughs> You're in very good company. It makes a lot of people mad. Yeah. Well, Michael Downing, thank you so much for your time today. Shoes outside the door. It's been just an amazing companion to me in the two times that I've read it and I've heard from other people who also feel the same way so your book has landed well and it still matters even though it's been written a while ago so thank you so much sir for spending this time with me today. Oh, it's been really heartening to talk to you thanks a lot Greg Classical Ideas is produced by me Greg Soden Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts, 
Thanks for listening.